Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. This Sunday, if you'd open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 4 through 9, a sermon I'm calling The Paradox of Christianity. With that, let's just jump right into deep water in the New Testament. Kind of difficult to wrap our brains around, but here we go. Look at verse, starting at verse 4. The Word of God says, Even as he chose in him, excuse me, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself. As sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace in which he, was, he has blessed us in, in, the, in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he Set before forth in Christ. The doctrine of election is one of the more difficult doctrines in the entire New Testament. That's what we're going to be talking about today. One thing that makes this doctrine difficult is the word election only appears six times in the, in the New Testament. And so some of the things that, that those that, that, that hold to that believe is, you know, questions that is asked is when did God choose us? Well, the text says before the very foundations of the world. That means before you, you and I, before we did anything good, God chose us. That means before we ever did a single thing evil, God chose us. Before we exercised faith in Jesus Christ, God cho chose us. And then the question is, why did he choose us? Is it because we're so awesome? We're so great that God looked in history and said, oh, I'm going to choose that one. No. The Bible says, according to the purpose of his will. The, the, in verse 5 of Ephesians chapter 1, we find the word predestined. And the doctrine of predestination, it obviously has some pitfalls associated, associated with, especially with the way that it's often taught. So this should, the way it's taught, it really should bring up the idea of fatalism. Okay? It should bring the idea of determinism, that we really don't have any control over our lives whatsoever. And so that raises a question for us as a church. If everything is determined or predestined, why should we tell anybody about Christ? I want to clarify from the Bible what God says about these great theological truths. That brings me to my first point this morning. Point number one. The doctrine of election... Is a paradox. I think that might be the most profound thing I say this morning. Okay? The word paradox, it means apparent contradiction. It means what, what may appear to be contrary. But let me tell you, the doctrine of election is not a contradiction in the mind of God. He's not confused by this in any way, shape, or form. In fact, the very mind of God, it defines logic. The mind of God, it defines reason. And so I do not think the doctrine of, of election is in the Bible uh, as, as, as an apparent riddle for us to try to comprehend. I also don't think this is something that, that Christians should argue about or debate about. I think that the doctrine of election is in the Bible so that we will praise God. 
It's in the Bible so that we will look at, at it and look at God and, and really try to just, just how to understand, say that his works are far beyond our ways. It, it allows us to contemplate the imponderableness of God, the, the mystery of, of God's nature. And it occurs to me that there are two facts concerning this doctrine that are indisputable, that are self-evident in, in life. And here's number one. Number one, man has a choice. That man has a will. That mankind has volition. That we have a decision to make. For example, I choose to raise my hands and surrender, let's say. No one puts me under constraint to do that. No one forces me to do that. So I do so of my own will. I do so of my own volition. I can also put my hands down. No one forces me to do that. No one determined that I would do that for me. When this service is over, I'm going to choose to get in my car, and I might choose to go home. Or I can choose to drive to Billings for some inexplicable reason. I can choose to do a cross-country trip and go all the way to New York City if I chose to. Nobody determined that for me. I do that of my own will. That's my choice. But at the same time, we have to recognize that your will and my will in many ways are limited and determined for us by human nature. It's self-evident to all of us that we have choices in life, but alongside that fact, there is another fact. One of the most, and that fact is that some of the most profound decisions in our life has already been made for us. We had no choice where we were to be born. We had no choice what our parentage would be and our heritage would be either. I was born in Bakersfield, California in 1974. Now, I did not choose that. Okay, if I'd been born in the heart of Africa, I'm sure that my life would look very different than it does today. I could have been born to some aboriginal tribe in the the middle of Australia, but yet I was born to a Caucasian couple in the center of California, and that determined a lot of my life moving forward. I could have been born in a Hindu home or a Muslim home or a Buddhist home, but I wasn't. I was born into what I would call an agnostic home. I didn't choose that. I wasn't born into a Christian home. You know, we didn't grow up going to church or talking about Jesus. I didn't choose any of that. I didn't choose my genetic makeup. I didn't choose the color of my hair or lack thereof. Okay? Some of you ladies in the the crowd, you did choose the color of your hair, and that's okay. I didn't choose mine. I'd choose more of it if I could, but I didn't. I didn't choose the color of my eyes. I didn't choose how tall I would be. I kind of choose how wide I am, but that's something different altogether. So much of of who I am was determined by God before I was ever born. So on one hand, we have the sovereignty of God, that, that God is in control of human history. Alongside that, we have the idea of moral responsibility. And those two things are paradoxical. They seem to be in contradiction to one another, but let me tell you, they are not. How can the God of the universe be in control of everything, that that he's sovereign, but yet man is responsible, and woman responsible, for the choices that we make? I think in the Bible there are two sets of nomenclature, okay? There are two sets of biblical words. Let's think of salvation for a moment, okay? There are sets of words that are used in the Bible from God's perspective as if God was looking at salvation, And then there's another whole sets of words in the Bible that look at salvation from our perspective, as if we are looking at salvation. 
From God's perspective, God would choose to use words like election. God would say something about predestination, about foreknowledge. God would look at that salvation through the, the realm of sovereignty. Through, he would use words like omnipotence and omniscience. To God, all of history is in the present. Why? Because God is outside of time. But you and I, we are locked into time and space, and we can't even comprehend it, it any other way. I've heard it said it's like a parade. Okay, Because you and I, we see a parade and maybe we're second in line in the parade and we're trying to peer over people's shoulders or, or over them or around them and we're trying to see the, the, the parade. But we're only getting a glimpse of the parade at the time. Okay, But yet God is above the entire parade. He sees the entire parade at once. It, because time is linear. So what happens is we only see a portion of what's happening. In the parade, maybe we get focused in and we see the clowns in the beginning of the parade, but yet we can't see the, the animals that are the, at, at the end of the parade, while God, being outside of time and space, sees all the parade in the present. He sees the clowns in the beginning. He sees the animals in the end all at the same time. And so when we think about uh, um, um, human beings looking at this thing of salvation, what we do is we use words like moral freedom. We talk about possibility. We think about contingency or choice. So, so think about the verses in Scripture concerning salvation from God's point of view. Many of the verses in Scripture clearly describe salvation from God's point of view. Look in John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Look in John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Go to Acts chapter 13, verse 48. The word of God says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the words of the Lord. And many of them were appointed to eternal life, believed. As they were appointed to eternal life, believed. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Those four verses that we just looked at, and there's countless more, they look at salvation through God's perspective, how God chose. Now, let's look at some of the verses that look at salvation through our perspective. Probably the most famous verse in all the New Testament, John chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Go to the last book in the Bible, Re uh, Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. It says, and the spirit and the bride, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Look in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. I quote this verse more than any other verse in the entire New Testament. Paul writes, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. 
So one set of verses talks about God choosing us, and the other set of verses talks about us choosing God. And there are verses in the Bible that say both. Look in John chapter 1, verse 12. The Word of God says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. In those two verses right there, back to back, it says, to all who did receive him. That's the idea of volition. That that brings the idea of choice. And right after that, it says, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. So there we have God's election. The two ideas side by side right there in in the same book of the Bible. That's just talking about God's election. Let's jump over to Luke chapter 22, verse 22. Jesus said, for the Son of Man goes as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. In that verse, that is talking about Judas Iscariot. How it was determined by God that Judas would betray Jesus Christ. That it was the plan from the very beginning. But then it says, woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. So to us, in our mind, that almost seems contradictory. But let me tell you, it's not. It was determined before time began that Judas would betray Jesus, and yet at the same time, he is responsible for his actions. How can you have both? The answer, it's a paradox. It was determined that Judas would betray Christ, and at the same time, he's responsible for the choices he made. So there, in one verse, you have both doctrines. You have the sovereignty of God, and you have human responsibility. This is what Charles Spurgeon said about that. He said that the system of truth revealed in Scripture is not simply one of a straight line, but two. No man can get the the right view of the gospel until he knows how to look at the two lines at once. He said these two facts, divine sovereignty and human freedom, are parallel lines. And you can't make them meet. Neither can you make them cross. It's been said that it's like railroad tracks. Railroad tracks parallel, but they never meet, right? You can never bring them together. The Bible teaches divine sovereignty, and the Bible teaches human responsibility. So some passage teaches about God's election, and other times you'll look at other passages, and it teaches that we choose God. So here's the question you're sitting there asking. Which one's right? Here's the answer. Both are right. Both are right. And that's a paradox. There was a man by the name of John Braddus. He was a professor at a Southern Baptist seminary in Kentucky in the 1800s. And he illustrated this truth with the fact that we can't see the sides of two buildings, uh, uh, excuse me, two sides of the same building at the same time. So if you see the two sides of a building at one time, and if you go around to the other side, you see two new sides of the building, but you lost perspective on the first two sides. You see, that's true for us because we're on the ground. But if you're up where God is, you could see all four sides at the same time. Our little finite minds, we can take in the sovereignty of God, and we can take freedom. We can, do, we can think about those things alternatively, but we can't comprehend those two simultaneously. From our perspective, it's, it's limited because we're on the ground, but yet God sees that entire building at one time. You know, when people finally started flying, 
They were so amazed to be able to see mountains and and buildings from God's perspective. Because prior to the the invention of flight, that had never happened before. So we can grasp human responsibility or we can grasp divine responsibility. But it's impossible for us to grasp the two at the same time. Yet God has a perspective uh, not only upon spatial structures, but he has a perspective upon time itself. God is the only one that can see the beginning and the end all at the same time. There was a theologian by the name of John Bunyan. He, he taught when we get to heaven, you're going to enter the, the gates of heaven. The, and and you're over the, the gate of heaven, it's going to say, whoever will may come. And then after you walk through the gates, you're going to turn back and you're going to look. And it's going to say, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You see, it's the same gate, but it's a matter of different perspectives. The word election and the word predestination, they're very strong words. And our temptation as Christians is try to explain them away. But let me tell you, you don't have to reconcile election and human responsibility. You don't have to get it all figured out because both are taught in the word of God. They're, they're both taught, and that is a paradox. We have many paradoxes in the Bible. That's not the only one. The Bible teaches that Jesus was fully man at the same time he was fully God. How can we reconcile that in our own mind? But yet that one we just accept as truth. How can a human being be God and how can God be confined to a human body? That's a paradox. You see, you can't fully reconcile the doctrine of incarnation philosophically or logically in your mind, but yet the Bible presents both as truth. Jesus was fully human, and he was fully divine at the exact same time. And that's a paradoxical truth. It's apparent contradiction that that just as election and human responsibility are paradoxical truths. Here's my second point for this morning. Point number two. The doctrine of election is necessary because of the nature of man. You see, we are totally depraved. All of human beings, we are are, are messed up completely. Read in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. It says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. In essence, this is what God is saying. God is saying, if left unto themselves, no one would seek after me. No one would come after God because that's how sinful we all are. Now, Adam and Eve, they had absolute free will, but you and I, we've inherited this this sin nature from from Adam. Adam and Eve at one time were morally neutral. Now, they could have chosen to obey God or they chose to disobey God. But yet you and I, all of our choices are tainted by sin. Read in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there are those that maybe think, they try to to wrap their brain around this, and they'll come up with this idea. They'll say, well, maybe someday there'll be a human being that is born someday that will choose not to sin. Well, let me tell you, if we have free will, and we do, every single one of us choose to sin. And it's because of our nature is inclined. It it has a predisposition towards sin. Because of that, God must, of necessity, initiate salvation. Because 
None of us would seek after God. Okay? That's why Jesus says this in John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Jesus says, No one's going to come. No one's going to seek after me unless the Father draws them. My third point for us this morning, point number three, the doctrine of election is necessary because of God's promise to Jesus. Now, somewhere in eternity past, we don't exactly know how, we don't exactly know where, but it must have been communicated at some point that the Father promised the Son that he would die for humanity. And after he died for humanity, that the, the Father would give him people to be his. That he was promised that someone would be saved, that someone would be atoned for. Now, we don't have the passage exactly that points that out, but that is inferred to by some passages that Jesus said this. Look in John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So Jesus said, all of them, every single one of them, the Father has given to me, they will come. That's what Jesus said. Now go to John chapter 17, verse 6 and 9. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, and I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. So this doctrine of election, it is based upon a promise made by the Father to the Son, that he would literally give him people to be his. Fourth point for us this morning, point number four. The doctrine of election is not based on man's belief or behavior. There are some, they'll say, well, this, when this happened, what happened is God looked down the tunnel of time, and then he saw who was going to be good, and then God chose to elect them. Or there are those who will say, well, God looked down the tunnel of time and said, you know what, this one's going to choose me, and since he's going to choose me, I will first choose them. And that's a wonderful theory, but that's not what the Bible says. Look in Ephesians 5, or Ephesians 1, verse 5 again. It says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I want you to know that this doctrine of election, it came out of the very heart of God. And if, that, if it came any other way, it, salvation would not be by grace. The salvation is by grace. And the word grace means unmerited favor. That this thing called salvation, we don't deserve it. We can never earn it. It's not that, that we were so good that God looked out and said, hey, that person in Warland, Wyoming, they're so awesome. They're so amazing. They're going to be so good. I'm going to choose them. That's not what God said. Nor did God say, hey, that person, they're so intelligent. They've, they got it all figured out. They're so smart. They're going to figure out this thing called salvation, and then I'm going to elect them. That's not being honest with what the Bible says. The Bible says that it was according to the good pleasure of his will. It's not according to our beliefs. It's not according to our behavior that he chose us, that God initiated salvation. Point number five for us this morning. The doctrine of election concerns salvation and not damnation. 
There are those that, that, that really hold strongly to this, this doctrine that they will go on to say, well, God chooses some to go to heaven and God chooses some to go to hell. I will say that's an absolute horrible view of God. Election is never presented in the Bible for the seeker. It is never presented in such a way also that someone could say, oh, I would love to come to Jesus. I would just love to, but the truth is I can't. I can't because I'm not elected. That's not what, the, what any of us should say. See, n- none of us should never say, that, excuse me, none of us should ever say that we cannot come. The truth is that we will not come. The door of mercy is always open because the scripture says whoever shall come. The doctrine of election is always presented in the Bible every single time in the positive So that means if a man or woman, if they should go to hell, they go to hell of their own volition, okay? They go to hell by the rejection of Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as election to hell. Reading Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, the word of God says, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his ways and live, turn back. Turn back from his evil ways. That's what God said in the Old Testament. Now look at what God says in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The word of God says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The word all means all. It's God's will that all should come to repentance. So please realize that the doctrine of election, it concerns salvation and never damnation. Point number six, the doctrine of election does not contradict man's free will. You and I, we have the power of choice. Therefore, we are responsible for the choices we make. But yet at the same time, our choices are controlled somewhat by our nature. And we do have this power to choose, though. Read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. A lot of times, when we're replaying the, the story of Adam and Eve in our mind, we get the story of wrong. We often think that the serpent came and tempted Adam and Eve, and they were deceived and they fell into sin. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Eve was deceived, that she didn't really know what she was doing, that uh, she's in the garden and that smooth-talking serpent, I just love how Tony Evan calls him slick, he comes in and, and, and he deceived Eve. But the truth is, Adam knew full well what he was doing. Eve had already sinned, and so in that moment, Adam had a choice to make. Do I choose to be with God, or do I choose to be with my wife? He followed Eve into sin. Adam freely chose sin. And so mankind, we have a choice to make. Every single one of us still has free will. Read in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. This is what Joshua says about this. He says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites whose land you now dwell But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
That's what Joshua says. If we have no choice, it would be ridiculous for, for, for him to say, choose. But we have a choice. He said, you choose who you will serve. So on one hand, we have the doctrine of election. And on the other hand, we have human responsibility. Read in Revelation 22, verse 17. It says, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The truth is every single human being has a choice to make. And that's a paradox. It's a mystery. And I'm sure there's someone that is here with us today, maybe watching online, that says, I can't live with that. I have to have all these philosophical ends tied up. I can't live with a paradox. But the truth is, we live with paradoxes every day. We do. We live with them in nature. There is a force called gravity. And gravity is so strong that it holds our entire planet in orbit, spinning on its axis, going around the sun. And yet that gravity that is so strong that it can hold this giant chunk of dirt in an orbit, and yet a butterfly can fly through it. How is that possible? That's a paradox. Gravity is such a powerful force, and yet I can raise my hands or lower my hands through gravity. Am I stronger than the force of gravity? Absolutely not. And yet at the same time, I'm not pulled to the center of the earth. It's a paradox in a sense. Within nature, here's another one. We have what's called centripetal force. Centripetal force is, is seen when something spins around its axis, that everything gets pulled into the center. If you've ever been a little boy that's played in a bucket of water, you've seen this happen. You take a spoon and you begin to stir it, and everything gets pulled into the middle, right? That's centripetal force. Or is it centrifugal force, where everything pushed out as it rotates around its axis? The correct answer is it's both. It's a paradox. When you stir a bucket of water, you can see centripetal force and you can see centrifugal force in the same bucket. It's similar with the sovereignty of God and man's choice or human responsibility. They are both true. And that's a paradox. The Apostle Paul, he wrote extensively about this in the book of Romans. In a few months, we're going to get to Romans chapter 9. And every good Calvinist knows Romans chapter 9's forwards and backwards. And very clearly, it teaches about predestination and election. And then you go to Romans chapter 10, and it talks about our, will, our free will to choose or reject Christ. And then in verse 11, this is how Paul sums it up. In Romans 11, verse 33, Paul says, Oh, with the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment. How inscrutable are his ways. That's how Paul summed up this teaching on, on election. If Paul, the, who I would argue is maybe one of the most intelligent men to ever walk the earth, says he can't wrap his brain around it, who are we to say that we've got it all figured out? Because he finally just said how unsearchable are his, his judgment, how inscrutable are his ways. There's another great question. If, if, if this idea is brought up, the question that is often asked is, can a true believer someday lose their salvation? And the entire Christian world is cut into two camps on this one. Okay? There are those that will say, well, if you're a true believer, you can never lose your salvation. And the other camp says, well, you can lose your salvation either through an act of your own will or through perpetual sin. 
And there's some that go on to say, well, you can lose your salvation through the slightest little infraction of God's will. And they will call that falling from grace. Historically, there was a man that first posed this. He was a man by the name of Jacob Arminius. He was from Holland, and he lived in the 16th century. Prior to the 16th century, you can't find anybody writing about this. Here's my stance on what Mr. Arminius wrote about. I believed he was wrong. I do not believe that a true believer, redeemed by the blood of Christ, saved by grace, can ever lose their salvation. And this doctrine is sometimes called eternal security. Sometimes it's called once saved, always saved. And others call it perseverance of the saints. This brings me to my seventh and last point for us this morning. Point number seven, eternal security is based on the nature of salvation. There's some say, they teach, well, you're saved by your lifestyle. There's others that will say, no, it's not about your lifestyle. It's by some act, some, something like baptism. They'll say, oh, no, it's by taking communion or you're, you're saved by becoming a member of a certain church. And there's some that say, no, it's not that. What it is, at the end of your days, you're going to stand before God, and God's going to have a giant set of balance scales. And then God's going to take everything bad you've ever done and going to put it on one side of the scale. And then God's going to take everything good you've ever done and put it on the other side of the scale. And if the good outweighs the bad, well, then you're good to go. But if the bad outweighs the good, well, then you've got real problems. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that salvation, this being made right by God, is based upon grace. Read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Paul said it this way. He said, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of works so that no one may boast. The word grace means unmerited favor. That, that, that this thing called salvation, it's nothing, it's nothing you deserve, and it's nothing you could ever earn. For by grace you have been saved. And the mechanism that you've been saved is faith. Not yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of God, not of works, not of your performance, lest anyone should boast. You see, either salvation is something you obtain by being good, by joining a church, by being baptized, by doing something, or it's a gift of God. It, it has to be one or the other. It cannot be both. Either it's something that you achieve or it's something that you receive. I don't believe that we can achieve salvation. I do not believe that the Bible teaches that. Salvation, Paul very clearly said, is not a result of works. That's what he said very plainly in that text. I guess the question that someone might ask next is, well, how strong does someone's faith have to be in order to receive salvation? Well, I don't, I don't exactly know, but I know there was a woman in the New Testament that she just reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' robe. And then Jesus said that that act was a great act of faith on her part. I heard a story once of a hunter. And he's out in the woods and he's trying to fill his deer tag. And he came to a frozen lake. And he came to the conclusion that he had to cross the lake to, to get his deer. And so he stepped on the ice and he began to walk. And soon he heard the ice begin to crack. And he got scared and he laid down on the ice and was inching so very slowly across the ice on his belly, trying to take up as large a surface area as he possibly can. 
At about that time, he heard a huge crash, and there was a lumberjack with a team of horses pulling a giant pile of logs, and he was running across the ice. And the lumberjack looked at the, at the hunter and just laughed because he was so scared that he was going to break through the ice, but yet the ice was strong enough to hold the, not only the, the lumberjack, but the horses and a giant pile of trees. You see, someone might live in insecurity, but we have the promise of God that salvation is eternal. And the nature of salvation, that salvation is by grace, gives us that security. You see, if salvation is a gift, and that's exactly what God's word says it is, that means you cannot earn it. It was given to you. How absurd would it be for us to say, well, God has given me this gift of salvation. Now I have to be good to keep it. That's not a gift, but the gift of salvation is by grace. See, this issue of eternal security of the believer, it's based on the very nature of God. Read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. The word of God says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying there is that God completes what he starts. And I think this issue of internal security, it really hinges on your view of the Bible. How do you view the words in the Bible? Why believe in something called verbal inspiration, the verbal inspiration of the Bible? What that means is I believe that every word in the Bible is inspired by God. Even the tense of those words. And the Bible says that God will complete salvation. That is not a conditional phrase. It does not say, well, he'll complete it if you're good. That he'll complete salvation if you get baptized. It doesn't say that he'll complete salvation if you take communion. It does not say that he will complete salvation if you join a certain church. It also does not say he'll complete it if you, if you never sin again. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he will complete it. Eternal security is based on the very integrity of God. That salvation is a gift of God. That God doesn't give a gift and then he takes it back. That's not how God operates. Read in Romans chapter 6 verse 23. It says, for the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. What is the gift of God? It's right there. Free gift of God is eternal life. What does eternal life mean? It means forever. That's what it means. In other parts of the Bible, it says that God will give you everlasting life. You know what that means? That means life that does not end. It means forever. That's how I would define it. If we believe in the verbal inspiration of of the Scripture, we have to accept the words of Scripture, not just concepts, okay? Because words have meaning. And so what do words like eternal life mean? It means exactly what you think it means. It means life that will not end. Then there are those that counter that. They'll say, well, you don't really get eternal life until you get to heaven, eternal life. And there's an element of truth to that. You see, there comes a point in time where a believer is saved. 
that they recognize they're a sinner, that they recognize that God, that Jesus is the Savior and what he's done for us, and we give him our, our life, and we are saved in that point of time. And then we are progressively being sanctified throughout the rest of our life on this earth, and eventually we are saved in glory. Read what Jesus says about this in John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has. You hear that word? That's present tense right now. They have. What do they have? Eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has. There it is again, present tense right there. What has he has happened? He has passed from death to life. You see, if the words in the Bible are inspired, then everlasting life is something a believer has in the present tense. That's what Jesus just said. And we shall, future tense, not come into condemnation or judgment. I want you to know that God's word says what it means. Read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. The Bible says, Which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. That's Paul's confession right there. Paul says, I've committed something to God. And I am confident, I am persuaded that God is strong enough and God is the one that's going to be able to keep me. You know what Paul does not say? Paul doesn't say, oh, I'm gonna be strong enough to hold out. You know, Paul does not say, I'm I'm so sure that I'm never gonna sin again that, that God has to save me. Paul never says, I'm not gonna deny Christ. That's not what Paul says. What Paul says is my persuasion and my confidence are in God, that God's the one that's going to get this done. That's what he's saying. And the word guard that's up there, that God is the one that's guarding us, the word guard means to, to be kept from being snatched away, to be preserved, safe, unimpaired. That's what that word means, that God is the one who's guarding a believer, that God's not going to mess up. Never once in the history of time did God ever say, oops. I missed that one. Never going to happen. And our faith is not just in some belief system. Our faith is in a Savior. His name is Jesus. Read in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. Paul says, "For For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights nor depths, nor any else, anything else in creation, We'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in those those two verses there, Paul goes through a litany of things. He's basically saying anything, nothing is going to be able to separate you from Jesus. And he adds on this little paraphrase because some people probably think it. He say, nor anything else in all creation. Let me ask you then, when, when was the last time you were not a created thing? Never. I've always been a created thing. So not even you yourself will be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. And then think about this. Think about what Jesus Christ is doing right now according to the book of Hebrews. Look in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. It says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercessions for them. 
God says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost because that's what he's doing right now. Right now, at this moment, Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's making intercessions for believers. You know what's happening? When we sin, he's saying, hey, Father, don't condemn that one. Don't condemn that one because that one's been clothed in my righteousness. He's saying, hey, I I died for that one. That one placed saving faith in me. Salvation, it's an absolute gift from the Father. My question is, have you received this gift? Have you received this gift by faith? Because again, we can't achieve it. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. That is a gift to God. And I would ask you, if you've never placed faith in Jesus Christ, to do that now. That we're not promised tomorrow. We have this life to choose Christ after that judgment. So there must come a point in time where we recognize our sinfulness. We recognize the perfection of Christ and how he came and he died for sinful men and women. That's you and I. And we cry out to him. And for most of us, it happens through a prayer. Something along the lines of, dear God, I am a sinner. That it's my sins that you went to the cross for, that you died in my place so that I can be saved. Lord Jesus, I give you my life. Save me from my sins. And I pray this in your holy, precious name. Amen.